on the Historian's Podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome Peter Betts. How are you doing, Peter? Well, I'm, I'm glad to talk with you again. I got my makeup all on, so I look real good, and I'm ready to start. You look marvelous, Peter. Uh, Peter Betts <laughs> uh, writes a regular history column for the Leader Herald newspaper in Fulton County, retired Fulton County historian and Fulton Montgomery Community College professor emeritus. And we've got a really big story uh, to discuss with uh, Peter. It's a story having to do with a really big animal, an elephant, and it's called the Elephant in Green Hill Cemetery. Take it away, Peter. Thank, thank you, Bob. Yeah, uh, I actually missed this by a couple of days because it happened in August of 1954, and uh, we always went to Maine in August. At the, but you were in town. Did you go to that circus? I don't think so. There was a circus in town in 1954. It could have been. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. let me tell you the story. Many of us know the legend that somewhere there's an elephant graveyard where aged elephants go to die. And elephants keep the location of this boneyard and tusk yard a deep secret. If this legend is true, the mental map leading to this pachyderm nirvana imprinted in the brain of an elephant named Alice, who belonged to King's Brothers Circus, was somehow flawed. (laughs) On the morning of August 3rd, 1954, a caravan of King's trucks transporting circus animals slowly climbed Amsterdam's long Church Street Hill toward their destination, a field just below Collins Corners, roughly where Target stands today. But at that time, a wide expanse of farmland remaining from the old Collins estate. This was during the height of the 1950s polio epidemic, and the King's Brothers Circus was sponsored by Amsterdam's Kiwanis Club to raise money to aid crippled children and polio victims. Mm-hmm. Once the long, gradual church street incline was successfully negotiated, setting up the big show could proceed normally. This time, however, something abnormal happened. To quote the August 3rd Amsterdam Evening Recorder, mm-hmm. It was about 9 a.m. when Alice the Elephant decided she'd see if Amsterdam contained that fabled cemetery where all good elephants are supposed to go to die. And by the way, Bob, this really sounds like it was written by you, Donald, I think. (laughs) Could be. You know, at that time, Greenhill Cemetery still had its high iron fencing that began on the cemetery property next to City Hall and ran all along Church Street to the cemetery border on Cornell. The cemetery entrance during the 50s was also on Church Street, a very convenient access point for both human visitors and elephants. Mm -hmm. Continuing the recorder account, as near as her trainer can figure, Alice lifted the truck's guardrail with her trunk and plopped right out on Church Street, pounding her way into the cemetery. Now, the Glovesville Morning Herald carries the story forward. Uh, showing that sometimes the only way to convince a stubborn elephant to change his mind is to bring in a more agreeable elephant to do some persuading. Mm-hmm. And I quote, When circus workers tried to coax Alice back into the van, she refused to budge. Finally, Mona, another elephant, was brought back down to the cemetery. After an hour of elephantine chit-chat, Alice <laughs> calmed down and both animals were loaded back into the van. but not before a Schenectady Gazette photographer arrived and photographed the two pachyderms 
quietly chewing tree leaves and talking things over tusk to tusk. <laughs> One wonders if perhaps he used a wide-angle lens for that job. Yeah, that could be. Apparently, Alice was one of those opinionated, stubborn types of elephants, the sort who liked throwing her weight around, because this wasn't her first break for the monotony of circus travel. The day after Alice's sojourn into Greenhill Cemetery, an Elmira Gazette columnist recounted a list of things that had already gone wrong for the King's Brothers show. In May, a truck driver parked a tent a circus vehicle containing the big tent and forgot where he left it. Oh. So for three days, the circus played without its big top. Mm-hmm. Worse, on June 7th, brakes failed on a large transport truck descending a steep Pennsylvania hill. It overturned, killing three workers and 12 show horses. Elmira readers were also reminded that while the show was in their city, quote, one of the elephants broke away and caused extensive damage to two Sullivan Street properties. And when the show moved out of Utica Monday night, two elephants were left behind. <laughs> now, how do you misplace two elephants, I'd like to know. It's hard to, hard to do. I think so. And finally, on Wednesday in Amsterdam, Alice the elephant broke away again and roamed the cemetery for two hours. That word again suggests to me that Alice was probably the same elephant that caused all the trouble in Utica. (laughs) Anyhow, regarding those elephants left behind in Utica, the Schenectady Gazette commented, circus hands who returned for the elephants could not explain how they had been left behind. I know. In spite of these troubles, the website www.circushistory.org states that 1954 was actually a very good year for the King's Circus financially. Managed by veteran circus man Floyd King and carrying 18 elephants, it visited 195 cities, traveling 11,228 miles from April to November before returning to its winter quarters in Macon, Georgia. Mm. With all that travel, it's probably understandable why Alice would like to take an occasional romp. Right. Wondering what eventually became of Alice, I discovered another website. Uh, this is uh, http slash slash elephant.se, which provides a, cir- a census of all known circus and zoo elephants, past and present. Hmm. This site is currently under renovation, but I'm hoping I can get back and check on it and find out a little bit more about Alice's later career and, for- and fate. Huh. Fortunately for Greenhill, Alice seemed respectful of the deceased human's memorial markers clustered around her and did no damage. Trotting around the tree-lined expanse just inside Greenhill's entrance, she soon discovered some low-lying branches covered with delicious leaves and settled down to munch until her pal Mona arrived to talk her into returning to the van. Mm. Incidentally, the King's Brothers was among the very last circuses to feature a circus parade, and their Amsterdam appearance including uh, included one, steam calliope and all. Mm. So I think I think that was a, yeah. and, kind of an interesting thing as a postscript. Indeed. Well, uh, okay. And now, maybe before you start the postscript, I was just going to mention, isn't it so that like the big remaining circus, Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey, they're, they're banning, or they're not going to use elephants anymore. 
Yes, and I don't know where what they're going to do with elephants that aren't useful really in a circus. And you know, it's not like they're going to return them to Africa or something. I, I really don't know. I'd say that was a very large problem for them. Yeah, it was a large problem. And anyway, when you were talking about Alice in the cemetery, I was I thought maybe that there actually was uh, an elephant buried at Green Hill for some reason, but but not really. Oh, but we can we can get into another story about an elephant. An elephant we think is buried or was buried near Johnstown. All right, well, that's, uh, that's another thing. But I just want to finish this a uh, little bit uh, because a lot of newspapers picked up this Green Hill story. And, uh, you know, Myra Gazette columnist, for example, observed the whole situation and said, someone on that show should write a book. Going back a lot earlier than that to the year 1852, mm-hmm. this is an interesting story, which I had heard in several different versions over the course of my lifetime and didn't quite know what to believe. Uh, the probably most easily accessed account, uh, is in a a book called uh, From Tomahawks to Hat Pins. And that was uh, written by a lady named Alice Rolls, R-O-W-L-E-S, about 30 years ago. But mm-hmm. it's, it's commonly around. People can get a hold of it. And this is about two elephants named Ro- Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you one thing. When you're researching elephants, I, I discovered quite quite rapidly that Half the elephants in circuses are named Romeo or Juliet. Really? Well, yes. It's, especially when they, if they have a pair, you know. Mm. So probably better than Martin and Lewis, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this was in 1852, and in her account, okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in, in her account, uh, a a circus came to town and did a performance. And that was Johnstown, uh, Peter. That was Johnstown. Johnstown. Yep. Go ahead. Yes. On the way out of town, okay, they're heading west. I believe their next uh, show is in Little Falls. Uh, They're heading west, according to her account, and others I've I've heard. And uh, at the the bottom of uh, West Main Street in Johnstown, there was and still is a bridge over Mm -hmm. the Candetta. But in those days, of course, in 1852, it would have been a wooden bridge, and who knows how strong it was. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was not strong enough. And according to uh, Mrs. Rolls' accounts, the two elephants, Romeo and Juliet, uh, were being taken with the rest of the circus animals. And neither one of them wanted to cross this bridge. And finally, uh, they, they coaxed Juliet into crossing the bridge. Well, Juliet got about halfway through the bridge, and the bridge caved in. Oh. And she was very badly injured. Apparently had a broken hip, according to her account. Mm-hmm. And uh, could not... The, the the other elephant, Romeo, he was a very large elephant, uh, uh, was able to help extricate her and get her out of this situation. And they set her up uh, right on the bank and put a tent over her so that you know she wouldn't be baking in the sun. But she was never able to heal and eventually died. And supposedly, talking about elephant bones being buried, supposedly she was buried on a farm very nearby, which was the Yost farm, which indeed is very nearby. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's still there today. And apparently, 
and I'm trying to run this down. This is the one part I haven't found. But it said in 1927 there was an auction held, uh, and among the things uh, that were sold were the bones of Julia, which had been dug up and stored in a barn for many years. Hmm. And uh, apparently nobody bid on them. I mean, you know, who really needs elephant bones around? <laughs> Probably not, yeah. Let's face it. Uh, they they were actually ended up given to a local taxidermist, and apparently he did what he could with them and gave up on the whole thing, and they gave them to Dartmouth College, and so apparently that's where they are today. Huh. But uh, here's my here's my thing about this. Part of the fun of all this stuff is researching things, mm-hmm. and I wanted to verify this first of all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to try and go back to some newspaper. Uh, from that time period, you know, and find out if this really, really happened. Right. Uh, and I was working on it last night while you were sleeping soundly. Mm-hmm. I was on the job. Okay. Okay. And uh, I, I was just about to give up, and I finally did find something. And I, I was able to identify the name of the circus and a few other things. So if I can just read this into the record. Sure. This is from the Oneida County Record. Uh, of uh, September 21st, 1852. Mm-hmm. It says, Two elephants belonging to the G.C. Quick Menagerie, which performed here yesterday in connection with Sands Circus, on coming across the bridge on the west end of the village, broke through and precipitated about 18 feet on the rocky bottom of the creek. One of them was so badly injured, it is doubtful it will be able to recover. Uh, so you may be content when the show arrives at Utica without seeing the elephant, which the population of this village, i.e. Johnstown, can do hourly, free of charge. Oh, dear. So this tells us something definitely happened. Yeah, it wasn't... Okay. Ma- Made up of whole cloth. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for... Uh, I found another account also from 1852. That one said it happened in St. Johnsville. Well, I think it's very easy to confuse Johnsville and Johnstown. Sure. And I think it really did happen in Johnstown. Otherwise, there wouldn't be talk of, um, you know, the bones of being buried at the Yost Farm, which was very nearby and would have made sense. Not knowing a great deal about circuses, um, this is 1852. I'm almost surprised that this existed. I mean, uh, a, a big circus like that, or circus with elephants. Well, there were there were quite a number. They actually a lot of them were not called circuses at that time. They were called menageries. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this was the Sands, Nathan, and Quicks Circus and Menagerie. Menagerie referring to the animals, circus referring to the entertainment, you see? Okay. And just how early circuses were around in America, I don't know, but that website that I mentioned earlier uh, has an immense amount of uh, circus history Mm. on it. And this this circus or this menagerie where the uh, elephant Juliet broke through the bridge, they were traveling over land? Let's say from point A to point B, not going by yes. train or something. Well, yes. Remember, this is 1852. 
Uh, I suppose if they were going on major east-west or north-south circuits, they could have taken trains if it was a big enough outfit to afford separate circus cars. But in those earlier times, what I've read uh, from the circushistory.org website, uh, circuses mainly traveled. The, the larger thing creatures, especially the elephants, were just walked from place to place. Mm. Kind of reminds me of uh, the old days of the Sanford Horse Farm in Amsterdam where they would walk the horses to Saratoga. Absolutely. I grew up hearing that story about my grandfather being involved, or my great-grandfather being involved with that. So, uh, yeah, on that, on, that, on that way to Saratoga, the way the account I got was they had certain places where they stopped and would rest the animals, and uh, the men too, of course, uh, have lunch, for example, things like that. Yeah. Certain farms where they were expected Yes. Also, I think they stopped at Top Notch, where there still is a restaurant, and it was a hotel of those days, and I believe that's where they had breakfast. I mean, they started out really early early in the morning. Uh, this was an account, I believe, written by the famous trainer Holly Hughes um, uh, about walking the horses to Saratoga. Yeah, well, that would make sense. And, of course, in those days, everybody started things early in the morning, Bob. They did. We're talking with the. Uh, we're talking. Hello there. We're talking with Peter Betts, uh, who writes a regular column every other week, I believe, for the Leader Herald newspaper in uh, Fulton County. And Peter, we uh, we have uh, you know a good chunk of time left, maybe ten minutes or so. If you wanted to uh, segue into another aspect of entertainment, a summer theater, you wanted to talk about. Well, yes, I'd be happy to do that. I'm I'm referring to the. Sacandaga Outdoor Theater, which, of course, the original building was part of the old Sacandaga FJ&G complex there. Mm -hmm. But I'm mainly referring to the newer one that was constructed later. Uh, And again, here is the story, if I may. Apparently, Guys and Dolls was too hot a show for the old wooden Sacandaga Park Rustic Theater. For shortly after the popular musical's July 20th, 1955 matinee concluded, ticket office employees saw smoke coming from behind the stage. The curtains quickly ignited and the show was soon over. However, this isn't the story of that fire, but rather of the theater's short-lived resurrection, when it struggled back to life for a few more years before changing tastes in local entertainment gave it the final hook. And that is what uh, people always blamed on the failure of the newer theater to survive, Bob. Changing mm-hmm. tastes, i.e. television. Ah. And and who knows what else. But, uh, I, and I mean, I was there too a few times. My mother hooked me into going up there. And you know what? I'll tell you something. That new building that they built was corrugated metal. All right? Right. And there was no air conditioning. It was hot as blazes in there. And if you want my opinion, <laughs> I wouldn't have gone back there more than once. In that, It was like being in a heat bath, you know? Yeah. But anyway, uh, to continue, even before the ashes cooled, those involved who believed the old adage that the show must go on began plotting its return. The July 22nd Leader Herald headlined, Rich Holds consultations on fund to erect new theater at Sacandaga Park. This refers to Eddie Rich, owner for the past two seasons and producer for the past four, 
who said he had been approached by two different groups to establish a fund to erect a new theater. One group from Gloversville and the other from Northville. And I get the impression here, from things I remember and things I read, that there was kind of a tug-of-war between these two groups mm -hmm. as to who was going to run it. In 1955, there was no reason not to think of rebuilding. Both the ambiance of the old theater and the high quality of Rich's productions had kept attendance high. Rich was a successful New York producer who brought big-name stars upstate each summer. The very day of the fire, that afternoon performance had played to a capacity audience. So why shouldn't a new theater succeed? The November 7th leader reported, Members of the site committee for the Adirondack Community Theater Incorporated met with James Rootling, president, and agreed to purchase a plot of land in Sacandaga Park. Joseph Tobin of the board of directors will leave tomorrow for New York, where he will interview director-producer candidates for the 1956 season at the Lambs Club. Mm -hmm. Older readers may remember Joe Tobin from his years at WENT, mm -hmm. when he and George Hornage hosted their daily program. Plans moved forward, although building a theater required state approval, which they eventually obtained. Apparently, Tobin's New York trip trolling for a new management yielded theatrical fruit. Uh, there was a man named John Larson, general manager of Anthony Farrell Productions, who announced that he would again be guys and dolls. And Farrell, a successful producer, was hooked on working with the situation. Soon after, Eddie Rich bowed out. And he built a new theater, he claimed. He would have had to mount a separate production from Rootlings, and he said it would not be cost-effective, and he was right. He was smart to get out when he could. Anyhow, the new Sackendog Theater rose quickly in the spring of 1956. On the eve of the first performance, June 25th, the leader Harold ran a supportive editorial stating, Tonight marks the opening of the new Sackendog Summit Theater, constructed at a cost of $85,000. Those who worked so hard to bring us this new theater deserve considerable credit. Many persons will spend enjoyable nights there this summer and many summers to come. Well, not that many summers <laughs> to come, as it turned out. The 1956 season ran smoothly, but there was a complete dearth of big names appearing during the 1957 season. When Murray Luck, the theater's publicist, addressed the Fulton County Rotary Club, he explained that it was partly because of the money involved, i.e. there wasn't enough of it. Right. But despite this, theater goers will have an opportunity to see a variety of good young actors and actresses. Cast and production staff were housed in the nearby High Rock Lodge, also the location of a training school for apprentice actors and actresses. And by the way, one of the young people in that training school was Joseph Alisi, Joseph G. Alisi, yes. uh, who I grew up with. Uh, and uh, Joe, of course, became a, uh, a customer, a major customer, first on, in uh, uh, New York theatrical productions and later in movies. He worked with Paul Newman in a number of uh, his movies. Right. At the start of the third season, the leader boosted the theater again by giving it an entire page of text and photographs, headlining, Showboat Will Launch Sack and Dog a Summer Theater. 
This summer, management adopted a new strategy for attracting customers. The June 21st article explained, each play will be a musical and each will run for two weeks. Producer Anthony Farrell assesses the season in terms of what drew best the previous year. How did this new strategy, did this new strategy work? Mm. Answer, yes and no. Patrons did come, but not in such numbers as to generate high profit. Mm. In March 1960, it was announced, quote, a newly formed group of area persons has leased the second August summer theater. This was the Gloversville group, incidentally. Mm -hmm. Anthony Farrell Enterprises has been released from the last six years of a 10-year contract. Now, right then and there, a big uh-oh should go up. <laughs> okay? Yes. The new Gloversville-based group set an ambitious schedule of 10 shows. It didn't work. The April 16, 1961 leader stated that the active managers of 1960 will not return due to heavy losses last year. Mm -hmm. Theater remained closed that summer. The last gasp was the dismal 1962 season, and when the August 20th, 1962 Gazette headlined, attendance off Sacagawea Theater folds, the final curtain descended. It was auctioned for $22,500 on September 17, 1971, and the metalwork was later sold for scrap having obviously attracted just too few guys and dolls to survive. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough business, that show business. So the the building's gone then, I mean, where it was located. Yeah. The, the building's gone. At the present time, uh, this uh, lot that it sat on is part of the property of a very nice, tasteful development uh, that has been owned and developed by friends of mine, Willem Munster, a Dutch gentleman, and his wife, who is who is a, a landscape architect. And they have put in a very nice, a tasteful group of homes. And Willem also bought the old uh, FJ&G station, railroad station, and has turned that into, there's one part's an apartment, and the other part is a museum for Sacandaga Park. So this summer theater was in or near Northville? Yes, actually, it was right along the road, just, oh, maybe two or three-tenths of a mile before you would turn uh, right and cross uh, the bridge into Northville. Okay. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left now, Peter. I, it so happens I, I was doing a, a column and uh, on the Sacandaga Park. I usually do try to do something different on it every summer, and I'd found a um, an article in a, a publication of the uh, Broad Alban Kennietto Historical Society, which was written by the uh, town and village historian Gordon Cornell, uh, where he uh, kind of de detailed the train they used to have there starting in 1902, which was a little train. Yeah, the little train, but it was an actual steam train, apparently. Uh, and yes, it, it was. Yeah, and it, it says here this quote he had from it. Uh, is only about 26 inches high, weighs about 1,000 pounds, can carry as much steam as engine number three of the FJ&G. Uh, and it carried people and uh, mainly over to Sport Island, I guess, to watch uh, uh, sporting they, events. They had a track. Of course, you know, Sport Island basically was the baseball park and the stadium. But they had a track that went all around the outside of, of it 
and around the island, all the way around and back. Yeah. And, and that was how that, that ran. And, uh, and that, unfortunately, well, you know, because you've got it right in front of you, that uh, the poor thing was burned up. Uh, yeah, August of 1918, they used to store the train under the grandstand on Swart Island. There was a fire in the grandstand. The train was badly damaged and was not put back into service. So. Right. That was the end right. of the train. And, no, and we're practically... And no one seems to know what happened to it. I don't know. But we're practically uh, to the end of our of our time on the Historian's Podcast with Peter Betts, stories about uh, elephants and also about a summer theater that is no more. Peter, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Nice to talk with you. You know where to send a check. I will. Uh, Peter Betts... <laughs> Writes Bye-bye. a regular, you bet, writes a regular column for the Leader Herald newspaper. He's retired Fulton County historian, professor emeritus at FMCC. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore. <laughs>